Imagine that you're on a hike on a beautiful spring day. At some point as you're on this hike, you're delighted to hear running water. And, and sure enough, before too long, you come to a creek. But there's something wrong with this picture. You notice that someone has dumped trash into the stream. It's an ugly sight. The refuse is floating on the water. Judging by some of the empty soda cans, you see the trash has been there a while. And there's an ugly film that has developed on top of the water. You can't just leave the scene as you found it because it would, well, it would bother your conscience. So you stoop down and you begin gathering up the trash. It actually takes several hours before you can begin to see a difference. It's amazing how much junk is in there. You sit back and, and you rest for a moment and then you realize you're going to have to keep returning each day until this site is truly clean. But that's actually okay because, well, you know, this project is something that you'll be proud of. Except when you come back the next day, it's as if your work had been completely undone. In fact, there seems to be more trash than there was the day before. Somehow the garbage bred overnight. You, you think about the unlikelihood that someone came to this very spot and dumped their garbage just in the few hours since you had been here before. And you realize, well, something smells kind of fishy, so to speak. So you begin to follow the creek upstream. Sure enough, you come to a garbage dump that has been there for years. And it's emptying into the passing creek. Your cleaning job actually only served to open up a gap for more trash to come in and settle. You could go and clean every day. But it would be kind of like rolling a boulder up a hill only to watch it come back down again, which if you've never done, it's kind of fun. But it's pointless. If you want your creek to be clean, it means that you need to go directly to the source of the problem and clean it up. Marketing is something I kind of like to pay attention to. You know, Super Bowl ads and television and things like that. I'm going to name a few marketing slogan taglines, and some of them might be current, some of them might be from the past, but I want to see if you recognize them. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call out a few marketing slogans and taglines, and if you know what they are, just yell it out loud. I want to hear, I want to see, I bet there are nine of them, I bet we can get them all. Um, there are a couple of them that might be tough, but remember, they're not all current. Some of them might be old. Okay, here's the first one, and some of these are super easy. Uh, save money, live better. I heard it, Walmart. Somebody said Walmart. Okay, good job. Somebody said Walmart. Okay, how about this? You'll know this one, the happiest place on earth. Disneyland, Disney World. Very good. Okay, this one goes back a little ways, not too far. I'm loving it. Yeah, McDonald's, of course, everyone gets that. Hal, I heard you over everyone. <laughs> Love me some McDonald's. How about this? Uh, finger licking good. Mm-hmm, KFC, all right. Um, melts in your mouth, not in your hands. M&M's, you know that one. All right, this one, this one might be kind of tough. I, there's a couple of you in here that I think this might fit your genre pretty well. American by birth, rebel by choice. Come on, Jack. <laughs> you know this one. <laughs> Harley. Yeah, come on, man. You ride one. <laughs> All right, just do it. Nike, okay. Um, this one's an older one. Run for the border. Make a run for the border. Taco Bell, very good. And then the last one we're going to do, it keeps on going and going 
Energizer Bunny. You know, it's funny. Companies know some things about people. Companies know some things about each of us. They know that if they can get into our heart, if they can, if they can get us to remember their brand and buy, the, you see, marketing isn't about getting you to buy the product once. Marketing's about building loyalty. It's about getting you to remember what it is that they're selling and what it is they're trying to accomplish. And if they can get you to remember their product, if they can, in other words, get into your heart, then they know they can hook a customer for life. They're not looking for just the one-time sale. They're looking for the repeat customer. They want your money for the rest of your life. This week, Apple. Everybody knows the company. How many of you have an Apple, own an Apple product? Raise your hand if you own an Apple product, okay? How many of you wish you owned an Apple product? Um, you know, there, Apple's, it's, Apple's interesting to me because it has created some of the most intense brand loyalty of any product in the world. And, and it's easily recognizable. You, all you have to do is see that little apple with a bite taken out of it. You know exactly what it is. They have created an amazing brand for themselves. And what, it, it, it's just funny. This past week, and, the, and I'm just illustrating this point. This past week, they had a big unveiling for their new products that were coming out. And it kind of made me laugh a little bit. Because they un, their big unveiling was a pencil. <laughs> yeah, and, and then they and then they they then they put an S at the end of their iPhone six S. Did nothing really to upgrade it, but you know what they're going to do? They're going to get lots of us to go out and buy them anyway. The, a lot of us are going to go out and we're going to buy a hundred dollar pencil. How many of you thought at the beginning of the year you'd buy a hundred dollar pencil? You know what? I bet you somebody in here will. Okay. There will be millions of people around the world. Why? Because they have managed to convince us that it doesn't matter what they say, it's valuable, and you've got to have it, and you've got to want it, and it's the next coolest thing in the world. Companies have figured out that through their marketing, Apple's genius at it, they've figured out that if they can win your heart, then they will control you for life, and they can put anything out there, and you'll go spend your money on it, and you'll buy it. God knew this about us a long time before Apple did. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And it'll be up on the screen. If you want to flip through your Bible and look at some of the verses today, that's fine. It'll be up here on the screen as well. But look at with me at Proverbs 4, 23. Simply this. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, here's the point, and this is the first place in your bulletin where you can fill in the blanks. If you want to follow along and take notes today, that's great. But here's the thing. Our world knows something that God knew long ago, and it's this. Whatever rules your heart will define your life. Whatever it is that rules your heart will define your life. And that's why God led the writer of Proverbs, of this proverb, to say, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Here's the thing. Your heart, whether you realize it or not, is a battlefield. Your heart is a battlefield. This week, this Sunday, we're launching a new series, God's at War. And you saw the video, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what that means. And what it means that God's, what God's at war really means. And what we're going to dig into is the fact that your heart is a battlefield. And there are all kinds of forces in this world that are battling for control of your heart. 
And over here, there's God, the Lord God, your creator, saying, I want to be the Lord of your life. I want to be the one that controls your heart. I want to control your heart so that I can, I want to, to control your heart so I can define the path of your life. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some different ways that the world tries to attack us. And it's different for each one of us. We can look at every single person in this room and we can identify that there are different gods at war for your heart. They're fighting over control of your soul. The hard part to accept is this. We all have gods that are winning at controlling our heart over the Lord God. We all do. And we're going to be talking about what some of those gods are. Why we're going to talk about it? Why we're going to talk about these different gods that are at war over our soul fighting against the Lord God for control is this, because whoever controls our heart defines our life. And we need to guard our heart because everything we do, everything we say, everything we are flows from that. And so today what we're going to do is we're just going to take a few minutes and we're going to do a little heart exam. A little heart exam. We're going to see if we can diagnose a heart condition. Now, some of you may have been in situations in the past where you've had a physical heart condition. Now, I can say this, most of us go through our daily lives not really thinking a whole lot about the health of our heart. Most of us. Why? Because, well, it's not right there for us to see. I mean, we eat things maybe we shouldn't eat. We don't get enough exercise. You know, maybe we could drop a few pounds and it would help. But the bottom line is most of us aren't going to think about it until when? Until there's a problem. Until that chest pain starts happening. Until we've had to go to the hospital because of our first heart attack. You know, we don't really start dealing with problems many times until the symptoms are bad enough to force us to deal with them. And that's true in our spiritual lives as well. You see, a lot of times we have different gods, different idols, different things in this world that are fighting for control of our life, and, and they're, they're taking control, and they're getting to a certain place where they have started defining who we are and the decisions we make and the things we do. But until it really begins to be a problem, we're not really ready to deal with it. We're not even really aware it's happening. And my guess is there are some gods, there are some idols, there are some things fighting for control of your heart right now that you're not even aware of. And what we want to do is we want to talk about some of those things. We're going to talk a lot about a lot of different things that are fighting in this battlefield of our heart over the next few weeks. And I want you to understand this. A lot of the things we talk about in and of themselves are not bad, are not sinful. Most of them in and of themselves are not going to be bad and sinful. The question is, have they risen to such a place in your life that they've become an idol, that they've become a god, that they've started pushing the Lord God out of the way so that they can control you? And so those are some of the things we're going to talk about. So let's do this, let's do this diagnosis uh, of our heart problem. Let's begin taking a look at that. And I just want to give you a start on how we can look at that. There's a story in the book of Joshua, chapter 6 and 7. You see, the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now God has finally, Moses has passed away, and now Joshua is leading. And Joshua has led them into the promised land. And one of their very first tasks is God has been saying to them all along, I'm going to give you this land, I promise. 
This is yours. You're going to take it. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And yeah, there are a lot of big, dangerous people groups out there. But you, Israelites, this is for you. I'm giving this to you. You're going to go in and you're going to take this land. And they come to the city called Jericho. And it has a big wall built all the way around it. And God says, I promise you I'm going to give it to you. Just obey me. And so they did. And God gives them instructions on how to take this city. He says, I want you to march around it. I just want you to march around it each day. Don't say anything. It was one time, once a day, and I'll tell you when that's going to change. And so for seven, six days, they do that. On the seventh day, God says, today, you're going to walk around it seven times. And when you're done, everybody's going to give a loud shout. And when that happens, the walls are going to come down. And you're just going to march in the city, and you're going to take it over. Okay, God, you're the boss. Let's do it. And so they, they do what they're told. And on the seventh time around, they let out the shout. And sure enough, the walls fall down. And they walk in. And God had given them some, also some very clear instructions about what they were supposed to do when they went in. You're supposed to... Don't leave any living thing except for Rahab who helped the, and her family who helped out the spies. But don't leave any other living thing in the city. And don't take anything for yourselves. I want you to, to everything that's valuable is going to go into the tr- temple treasury. Everything else is to be destroyed. So that's what they do. And they go in, they destroy every living thing. They take all the gold and silver and all the good stuff out, put it in the temple treasury. They burn everything else. About that time, uh, one of the commanders in Joshua's army comes up and says, hey, there's another little town right over the hill. I don't even think we need the full army to go take it. Let's just take about 3,000 of us. Let's go over there and let's take it. And Joshua's like, okay, sure, go ahead. They go. Well, something happens when they go over the hill and they meet this little town. This little town is ready for them. This little town defeats them, turns them back, slaughters them, and runs them away. It was embarrassing. It was really bad on several levels because, A, all the Israelites, had, after seeing what happened in Jericho, were going, yeah, God's on our side. We can, do, we can do this. This will happen. Not only that, they knew that now that they had been beaten, all the other people groups around were going to say, wait a second, they're not so powerful. Let's go get them. So there's some bad stuff that, was happening because of this and Joshua says God why why would you lead us into this place for this kind of a defeat now everyone's going to run us over and take us over and God says because well basically God tells him I'm afraid I'm afraid there are some other gods battling for the hearts of the Israelites I'm afraid that you didn't completely obey me And so they go through the process, and Joshua then, kind of angry, goes through the process of trying to figure it out. Who was it that sinned against God? And what they do is they go through, they start off by dividing the tribes up, and then they identify, God helps Joshua identify a tribe, and then they begin breaking up into family groups, and God helps him identify a family group, and finally it leads him to a man named Achan. And Joshua walks up to Achan and says, Achan, what have you done? And this is what Achan says back to him. He says, Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. And we've got to understand when we look at this, this story, there are two battlegrounds. One's the literal physical battleground of Jericho and this other town where they were defeated. But there's another battleground going on, and it's in the heart of the Israelites and specifically in the heart of Achan. You see, God had said, I'm the Lord God, and I'm going to tell you exactly how to do this, but you've got to do it my way. I'm going to be on your side, and I'm going to fight these battles for you, and we're going to win them, but I've got to be the Lord God. 
Achan, unfortunately, had another God at war over his soul. And he disobeyed God. And he took the gold and the silver and the robe. And it cost him and his entire family their lives. They were executed because of what they did. And here's the thing. When we start thinking about this battle of our heart, God already knows that there are going to be lots of other things fighting for control. But he wants to know if he really is the Lord God of your life or if there's something else that's taking control. And that means we've got to ask a question as we kind of go through this story today, as we do this hard exam, and we've got to ask ourselves the question, is he truly the Lord of our life? Is he really the God that's in control of your life? Exodus 20. This is another place where God illustrates so clearly for us that he understands that this is going to be our biggest struggle, perhaps, as humans and trying to stay focused on him and to be his people. Exodus 20, this is where he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. Listen to these first two commandments that are given, starting in verse 3. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I find this interesting, that these are the first two commandments. Why did God start with these two? Love the Lord your God. Do not, and, and you shall have no other gods before you, and you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth below. Why were these two the first commandments? You see, God knew that there would be many things fighting for the heart of his people. And these two commands are where living a life that is pleasing to God begins. No other gods come before the Lord God. Nothing is worthy of our worship besides the Lord God. He created us. He made this world for us. He loves us completely and unconditionally. He jealously longs for our devotion and our worship and our love of him and, and our love back to him in return. You see, when he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, we're not talking about some kind of petty jealousy like a, like a teenage guy might have because his girlfriend's texting another guy. We're talking about a kind of jealousy. We're talking about the kind of jealousy, maybe another way to say it, Another word that would be synonymous with that, another word that could have been interpreted from jealous in translation would have been, sorry, I don't know why that's doing that. But uh, another word that, would have, that may have replaced that would be the word zealous. And maybe when you say, I, the Lord, your God, am a zealous God, maybe that helps you maybe define the word jealous a little bit more. He's zealous for us. He wants our devotion. He wants to be the Lord of our life, and he doesn't want anything else coming in the way. Imagine the scenario for me. Imagine you see me over at Longhorn one evening here in Monroe. You see me eating at Longhorn, and you, you just spot me across the room, and that's when you notice that sitting across from me is, is a woman. But that woman's not my wife. 
Now, I'll have some explaining to do later. But you had this woman sitting across from me, it's not my wife. And so you being bold, and as, you know, Eva is, Eva would come up and say, you know, Eva would come up, you would. You, you would come up and ask me what I was doing with another woman, wouldn't you? <laughs> you break my arm. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen. And, uh, and, so you would, and, and so Eva would come over and say, Daryl, uh, it's good to see you tonight. Uh, who, who, where is Cheryl? I would say, oh, Cheryl's at home. We, Cheryl and I, go to, we're together all the time. We go out all the time. I just thought tonight would be nice to have a date with somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> My other arm's now broken. Imagine even further that, because I can imagine how Eva would walk away, or any of you might walk away from an encounter like that. It would be, it would be disturbing. It would be confusing. It would be upsetting. It would probably even make you angry. Uh, imagine, though, when I got home. What it would be like when I walked up to the door, and Cheryl met me at the door and said, Hey, honey, did you have a good time on your date? Is that how it would work? <laughs> Nice try. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Where is the family? When I walk in, I, it's gonna be, they're going to be angry. She's going to be upset. She's going to be mad. She's going to be hurt. She's going to be devastated. Honestly, that's how I hope she would react. Because our love for each other and our relationship hopefully finds a jealousy, a, a zealousness that says there's no room in this relationship for someone else. Not like that. There's no room. And that's how we should, it would be really hurtful if I did walk up to the door and she didn't care. That would be hurtful. Your God is a jealous God. He doesn't want anything sitting on the throne of your heart besides him. There's a story in the book of Hosea about Hosea the prophet and I just find this such an interesting story and if you've never read it just read the first couple of chapters and you'll see God comes down to the prophet Hosea and says Hosea I want you to go take a wife I want you to go find a wife but here's the thing I want you to go find a prostitute and make her your wife okay so Hosea says God must have his reasons I'll do that and he, he obeys and he goes and he he finds a woman named Gomer, and he makes Gomer his wife. And they begin building a life together and, and building a relationship together. And they actually have three kids together, two boys and a girl. And they're raising this family. But after a while, Gomer gets restless. Gomer leaves. She goes back to her old life. She leaves the family, and she's back on the streets living as a prostitute. That's when God comes back to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to go find Gomer. And I want you to take her back as your wife again. Hosea goes and he pays to buy Gomer back. And he takes her back home. And he restores her back to the place where she was. You see, God gave that story through Hosea 
to show his relationship with the Israelites. I think it also could apply to each of us today. That there's a God that's reaching down for you and saying, I love you, and I want so badly to have a relationship with you. I'm jealous for you, but your heart is somewhere else. And yeah, we, we come to church and we worship together and we, we say all the right things and we say, God, okay, I'm yours and I want to be with you and I want to love you, but it's not long before we're out there prostituting our soul again to the other gods of this world. Thank God for his grace and his mercy. But you need to know this. He will not accept any other place in your life than being the one and only God of your heart. He will not accept, he cannot accept any other place in you than that. And so as we think about these different ways that, that God works in us and that he desperately is zealous for us and wants us, we need to ask five questions of ourselves. And I'm going to go through this. And I want you to hear these five questions. These five questions are going to help you identify. It's going to help you begin the process of identifying where there might be gods in your life at war for your heart, where there might be gods in your life that are pushing God off the throne of your heart and taking control. I'm going to give you these five questions. You can write them down, but they're things that you're going to need to reflect on on your own. Probably not right now during the sermon, but sometime during this week. Sometime over the next few weeks as we go through the series, ask these five questions. This is the heart exam I was talking about. The first question you need to ask yourself is this. What disappoints you? What disappoints you? You know, I want you to understand this. Of course, we all face disappointment from time to time. And we also know that there are those moments and those special things that intensify our disappointment, that cause us the greatest source of disappointment. Sometimes our disappointment, though, goes beyond maybe what is rational, and you know what I'm talking about. Maybe your source of greatest disappointment is with your career. Maybe of all the other things in your life, this one, your career, is just the one, your job, your job situation, maybe your financial status is the one you just can't get over. It's the one that constantly causes you the greatest disappointment in your life. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe, maybe it's your self-image, the way you look, the way you feel about yourself. Is it possible when you ask yourself this question, what disappoints me, that the answer to that question has risen to a place where it's kind of become a God that I'm obsessed with, that is distracting me from focusing on the Lord God? Here's a second question you can ask yourself. What do you complain about the most? Now, Let's understand this. Complaining obviously goes a little bit beyond disappointment. Disappointment's internal. Complaining is the thing that you, the things that come out of your mouth, the, the things that you say to other people. You know, sometimes the things that we complain about the most, we don't even realize it. This might be an opportunity, if you're bold enough, to sometime during this week go to someone you're close to and someone you trust, someone that can be really honest with you, and ask them, is there something in my life that you find me complaining about a lot? 
Is there something that I tend to whine about a whole lot? Ask somebody that question. Ask them to be totally honest with you. And tell them Eva won't beat them up. And tell them to be completely honest. And whatever, you know, and, and whatever it might be, it could be your career, your family, your marriage, your financial status, same kind of things. But whatever you complain about, I want you to think about the implication of it. When you're complaining, are you able to give glory to God? Can complaining and glorification come out of your mouth at the same time? You see, when we're busy whining and complaining about our life and the things in it that disappoint us, we're taking away from the opportunities to give thanks and praise and worship to God. You see, I think that if you answer this question that there's something, yeah, that, that you find yourself complaining about, I think there's a chance that maybe that thing has risen to a place in your life that it's a God or an idol. That thing is probably battling for control of your heart over the Lord God. It's definitely stealing away his glory. Here's another question you can ask yourself. Where do you make financial sacrifices? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Examine your bank statements. Take a look over your credit card bills. Where is your money going? Are there, are there, few, are, are there certain places that seem to get control of your money? You see, if you take a look at your finances and where you're willing to make sacrifices financially, you're probably going to find at least one and probably a few gods or idols there, if you're honest with yourself. Fourth question is this, what worries you? Has something become so intensely a source of anxiety and worship in your life, something that you fear losing, something that, 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 that has become a bit of an obsession maybe because of your fear of losing it, losing it. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a certain possession that you, that you value above everything. Maybe it's a relationship in your life that you value above everything else. Is there something that has become an obsession for you because of worry? Something that you're obsessed over protecting and guarding? What worries you? Chances are you're going to discover something that's at war with God over your heart. And if you can answer that question, it's going to be a big step in helping you identify how to deal with that problem. And finally, the fifth question is this. Where is your sanctuary? Where is your sanctuary? Where do you go for safety and comfort? Do you turn to entertainment? To television? Or sports? Or music? Or movies? Do you indulge in food? or alcohol, or other substances? Do you turn to a certain relationship, maybe even a relationship that's not very healthy? Where's your sanctuary? Where do you turn when you need that safety and comfort, when maybe things are not going so well? You know, we need a place. I'm, and I told you a minute ago, it's not that any of the things we're going to talk about through this series are bad in and of themselves, necessarily. But the fact is, sometimes our places of sanctuary that can be very healthy all of a sudden become things that we 
put on the throne of our heart and they begin pushing God out of the way. They begin to become things that we start depending on rather than turning to and trusting the Lord God. I think if you can take these five questions and sit down and spend some time with them and begin doing a serious examination, you're going to start to see that there are some things in your life that are threatening the lordship of God Almighty. Over the next few weeks, we're going to start off by talking about, and we're going to visit some different temples where these gods are at war in our lives. We're going to first, next week, we're going to visit the, the God of power. You see, the temple of power, I'm sorry. We're going to visit the temple of power. And in this temple, a lot of times, if this is a temple that we frequent, it's a temple where we bow down to the gods of money and power and success. And I think there are some of us here that that's a real temptation. And those gods really do fight for our heart. Then we're going to talk about the god of pleasure, the temple of pleasure. We're going to go visit the temple of pleasure in the next week, and we're going to see that the gods of, 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 of pleasure, of entertainment, of sports, of, of, of sex, and the draw of lust, and food, and other substances, these gods sometimes rise to that place where they are winning control of our heart. And we're going to talk about the God of love, the temple of love. And in the temple of love, we look at the gods of different relationships in our life, our kids, our spouse, our other family members, our friends, and whether or not those relationships have become harmful or whether they've risen to the place where they have replaced the Lord God as the focus of your life. And we're going to conclude by looking at the final God and perhaps the one God that controls all of this. It's the God of me, the God of you, that God that's inside of you that says, you know what? I'm going to make my own choices. I'm my own person. I'm going to do it my way. I don't need anyone else to tell me different. We have gods in our lives. The question is, as we start to identify them, as we do this heart exam, are we going to do anything about it? Or are we going to continue marching towards disaster in our spiritual lives? It's a story in 1 Kings story of the prophet Elijah. I love the story. It's one of my favorite in the Old Testament. You see, Israel at this point had a new king, Ahab. Ahab took a foreign wife. Her name was Jezebel. This woman was trouble. Ahab. It's God, God described Ahab in the Bible as being, as being the most corrupt of all the kings of Israel. Ahab takes control, and the, one of the very first things he begins doing under the, the guidance of his new wife, Jezebel, is they begin pushing away all the things of the Lord God's temple, and they begin replacing it with the God of Baal, and they build a temple to, to the God of Baal. And, and, and I'll, I'll say this, the God of Baal, if you don't know, in, in, in those times was a God that was really in control of the weather. But they had risen him up to this place, this exalted him to this place where he was above all else. They also began setting up Asherah poles all around, all around in front of certain temples. And what that basically was, as crude as it sounds, is it was worship of sexual activity. Basically what people would do is by worshiping, they would go be with prostitutes in these temples. 
And so you can only imagine how depraved and how terrible the society was looking at this point. These were God's people. This was his nation. And here they are worshiping Baal and Asherah poles and, 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 and being with prostitutes and calling that worship. And it was detestable. So God says, Elijah, I want you to go and I want you to tell Ahab, I am going to quit sending rain on the land. And I'll tell you when it's going to rain again. But right now, it's just not going to rain anymore. Irony was, Baal was the god of what? Weather. God was trying to get their attention. God wanted them to know, you've messed with the wrong God. And so the rain stops. Elijah goes into hiding. God sends him into hiding so they can't come after him and kill him and blame him for what God is doing. Well, three years pass, and sure enough, no rain falls on the land. About three year mark, God comes back to Elijah and says, Elijah, I'm ready for you to go back to Ahab, and I want you to give him a message. I'm about to start sending rain on the land, but I want you to go talk to him. So Elijah does, and he goes, Ahab, the Lord God is about to send rain on the land, but it's time for the nation of Israel to make a choice. What I'm going to do is I'm going to challenge you. We're going to show the people who the real God is. We're going to have a little bit of a showdown. We're going to have a little bit of a duel. What we're going to do is we're going to go up on Mount Carmel, and each of us are going to build an altar. You guys can build your altar to Baal. I'm going to build my altar to the Lord God. And then at that point, we're going to call down Each of us, one at a time, are going to call down fire from heaven, and the real God will answer. The real God will call down fire from heaven and burn up whatever's on that altar, and it will prove to the people of Israel who the real Lord God is. Now, at this point, they get ready for the duel, and they're on the mountainside, and all the people of Israel are gathered, and all the prophets of Baal are on one side, and Elijah's by himself on the other, and they're ready for this big duel. And that's where Elijah, and this is the point I want to end with today, and I want you to think about this. That is where Elijah turns to the people, and he makes this statement. Elijah went before the people, and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Follow him. And I think the most stark and sad and disturbing part of this entire story is this next line. The people said nothing. Elijah was standing there saying, you've got to choose Either the God of Baal, the God of our culture, folks, the gods, these gods that are fighting for control of our lives, the gods of pleasure and the gods of power and the gods of love and the God of me, they're fighting for control of my life. Either their God or the Lord is God. You must choose And I'm afraid and it breaks my heart that there are churches all across this nation and all across this world that when that challenge is made, they sit there quietly on their hands because they're not ready to make a choice. Because they're not willing to make a choice. Because they know that there are gods in control of their life that they're not ready to let go of yet. And so today I'm asking you and I'm putting this challenge in front of you. Is the God of this world, are the gods of this world, the gods of this culture, are they going to control your life? Are they going to be what sits on the throne of your heart? Or is the Lord God going to take his rightful place? What's it going to be? You've got to choose. You see, if God 
if the Lord God, your creator, really is the Lord of your life, it means a few things. It means that he gets to lead you when you make decisions. It means he gets to guide how you treat your family. He gets to be with you at your social gatherings and when you're hanging out with your friends. It means he has something to say about the music you're listening to or the movies you're watching or the entertainment you're seeing or the TV shows that you're addicted to on Netflix. It, gets, it means he is the focus of your future plans and choices. He is the center of your relationships. He keeps you from going to the websites that are poisoning your thoughts. He is going to help you fight your addictions. He is going to comfort you in the midst of your depression. He protects you when everything seems to be falling apart at home or in your other relationships. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He is the only one who's qualified. He is the only real God. And this series over the next few weeks has something to say to you about it. And these next few messages is going to give you an opportunity to look in your own heart and identify what gods are fighting for control and whether or not you're going to choose to follow Baal or whether you're going to choose to follow the Lord God. But you have to make a choice. I believe you're here for a reason today. I don't believe any person in this room is here for an accident. You're here today because God has something to say to you about the idolatry in your life. He has something to say to you about the gods that are at war for your soul. And he doesn't want you to get to a place where you're having a spiritual heart attack before you do something about it. He wants today for you to begin taking action, identify the problem, and deal with it. It's time to make the Lord God the Lord of your heart. Today, we're going to offer an invitation. It's a chance for you to respond, and we do this every week. It's a chance for you to respond to what you've heard. Maybe God has never been the Lord God of your life. Maybe you've never responded to him, and you realize today there's only one God that's worthy of that place in my life. If you'd like to talk to me or one of our elders about that, then you can find us after the service. You can come down front, and one of our prayer partners will meet with you and pray with you, and we can talk a little bit after the service. Maybe, maybe you're just saying, you know, I need a church family that I can connect with and to help me identify these gods and to fight them in my life. I want to join this church. I want to be a part of it. I want to associate with it as, as a member. I want to say it publicly so that we can hold each other accountable. And if that's you, come forward. One of our prayer partners will meet with you and we'll take care of that. Or maybe you just need to stand there and deal between you and God with whatever it is that's on your heart and mind and talk to him. But don't leave this place today without deciding whether or not the Lord God is going to sit on the throne of your heart. And by that, I mean sit alone. He's a zealous God and he wants you desperately. It's up to you to respond. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for our opportunity today to, to come into this place and to worship you and to sing songs and, and to just to enjoy the opportunity to and, and praise and worship. But God, even more than that, 
right now we are faced with the truth of your word, with the the command to make you Lord God and to worship no other gods and to bow down to no other idols. And God, I pray that not a single person will leave this room today without having answered the question, are they going to follow Baal or are they going to follow you? God, I pray your spirit is moving and working in our hearts. God, I pray that you'll make it impossible for someone to leave this place without acknowledging your place in their life. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for leading and guiding us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please?